This episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge is sponsored by SeatBoost, an airline solution and technology platform that maximizes ancillary revenue by selling upgrades for expiring seat inventory. Visit SeatBoost.com slash Airline Weekly to discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. That's S-E-A-T-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash Airline Weekly. Before the show begins, one quick editor's note. This podcast was recorded before the report of a fatality involving Southwest Airlines on Tuesday, April 17th. If we had known about the incident, of course, it would have been mentioned in the discussion about safety concerns. As has become tradition, Delta kicked off earnings season last week, and it was another standout report. The airline posted a solid 8% operating profit margin in the off-peak first quarter, something that was unheard of not too long ago. On the other hand, that 8% was down from 11% in the same quarter in 2017. Why is the margin slipping? The simple answer is rising costs. But it's never that simple, is it, Seth? No. I guess if it were that simple, we wouldn't have a job. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly, and that voice you hear was the not-so-simple Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. We're going to start the show with Delta's costs, which the airline says are rising unacceptably fast, and what Delta can do about it. Plus, we'll talk about IAG's interest in Norwegian and possibly Air India. And we'll talk about Lion Air's penchant for ordering planes. Allegiant gets tripped up by 60 minutes. Plus, we check in on Frontier Airlines. It's all coming up in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. We're starting the show with Delta's Q1 earnings report out last week, the first of the earnings season. In short, the results were great, but what we saw on the cost side was at least cautionary. Notice I'm not using the word startling or alarming or even daunting, but operating costs rose a whopping 10% in the quarter. Fortunately, an 8% increase in revenues largely offset that. Seth, how big of a concern are the rising costs? Well, you said it yourself in the intro, Jason. Uh, they said it themselves. Uh, unacceptably high rate was the uh, the quote. And uh, so, yeah, this is something that quite simply uh, don't have to be a, a finance guru to know that if costs rise more quickly in revenues, as they have been doing, uh, profits are going to come under, under pressure. And so Delta wants to get its hands around that. Um, for now, what you're looking at is a deterioration in margins to 8% from not only, as you said, 11% uh, just last year, but 18% the year before that. I, I mean, now look, to be clear, an 18% first quarter operating margin is is freakish and, and not something that really any airline can expect to report on a sustained basis. Uh, but still, when you have that that you know that 10 point decline for the period over over a, a two year period, that's a cause for concern. Kind of interesting, by the way, uh, that 8% margin that they reported in the first quarter it just ended was the same margin they reported back in 2014's first quarter and yet it it, it all came from very different places because back then they paid 
just over $3 a gallon for jet fuel. This time they paid just over $2 a gallon per jet fuel. Uh, and, and so what that tells you, of course, is that the cost pressure is coming from other places. Even though fuel is, is rising again in cost, a lot of that is is labor cost pressures. They've given their employees big raises, the raises that they promised to them you know, way back in the bad old days when they said, hey, stick with us. We'll make you whole. Now they're now they are having to do that. They're having to keep that word as our other airlines. Depreciation costs also hitting Delta. Is it realistic to expect them to be able to bring costs down? Well, you know, as I said, the labor costs to one degree or another. Uh, you know, everybody knew this was coming. Um, you know, once the airline became as successful as it now has become, uh, it was going to have to share some of uh, the the uh, the profits with it, with its employees as it's now doing. Um, so in the U.S., airlines in general in the U.S., not just Delta, are, are not expecting labor costs to decrease. That, very different, by the way, from what's happening in Europe, where you know when an airline group like Lufthansa goes and signs new collective bargaining agreements. These are still sometimes concessionary, uh, giving the airline cost savings. That's not happening for any U.S. airline. Um, but look, there are other ways, aside from just praying for fuel costs to fall, other ways uh, to bring down unit costs. Uh, one of them is upgaging, you know, just, just larger and larger aircrafts, which Delta is, in fact, bringing its, into its fleet. You know, generally speaking, when you put more seats on a plane, uh, e- either just through you know, densifying the cabin, literally putting more seats on the same plane, or when you go to larger aircraft, uh, your unit costs tend to drop. And that's because, uh, you know, just, just for people who don't know, uh, you get to spread certain costs among more passengers. You know, Generally, you're going to have the same two pilots flying the plane, even if there are more seats. They might get paid a little more uh, for a larger aircraft, but not commensurate with how many more seats you have. The technology is always another big uh, Opportunity for Delta. It uh, you know it's been in this virtuous cycle for years now, really for uh, uh, for a decade of you know kind of doing rather well and being able to invest the profits uh, part reinvest the profits partly into its operations into technology automation, uh, which in turn can then drive more profits and and, and the cycle continues. So uh, there are opportunities clearly. Uh, Delta has right now more cost problems than revenue problems. Uh, revenues uh, still still coming in very strong. And where are the revenues coming from? In other words, what's working? Yeah, you know, really geographically, uh, almost everywhere, Europe is doing very well. Uh, you know, 2017. I, I don't know that anybody quite saw coming what happened in, in terms of transatlantic markets. You know, you think of all the all the threats in terms of competition, low cost carriers, all the rest of it, and of course Brexit. And here you had, um, you know, unit revenues surge 10 percent year over year in the first quarter uh, for Delta to Europe. Um, you know, UK corporate traffic they. Delta said has never been stronger despite the threat of Brexit, or who knows, maybe because of it. A lot there's a lot of business involved in uh, trying to figure out how to manage Brexit, right? So there is some demand that comes from that. You know, Asia, uh, Delta called it "quote a great surprise" unquote how well uh, things are going in Asia, uh, and that includes China, Japan, South Korea, uh, the Caribbean has uh, you know is is, is coming back. 
uh, from that awful hurricane season. Um, yeah, so if you you know you want to look at exceptions, Mexico tough with all the new capacity after open skies. Uh, then you have the security fears, and in, in Cancun has hurt demand somewhat there, and then just sort of the drop off in in. Uh, it, it, some transporter traffic uh, related to the political issues. Seattle uh, is under unit revenue pressure. Delta says it's just because it's growing so quickly there. It's it's seat capacity there, there grew almost twenty percent uh, this quarter compared to last quarter. Uh, but um, all its other hubs saw unit revenue growth. So here we have an airline operating at the top of its game, enjoying a terrific domestic and global economy and reasonably uh, cheap oil, well, reasonable oil prices, let's say that. Are there any avenues left to improve? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned earlier the upgaging. So, you know, more specifically, I mean, the, the, the planes that they're taking, they're not just bigger planes. Um, they're also, of course, more efficient planes. Generally, as far as anybody can tell, obtained on very good terms. You know, Delta, um, you know, usually doesn't do an aircraft deal with, with, uh, with a manufacturer that's much less than desperate. I mean, look, I'm, I'm sure you know, Airbus wasn't desperate when it sell, sold Delta uh, A321neos, but uh, I'm sure it got a, a good deal on those, not to mention an excellent deal on the Bombardier CS100s, uh, which should be flying by early next year. You know, more 321, current generation 321s, 737-900ERs. These are all good aircraft and more efficient aircraft, uh, not to mention many cases, larger aircraft than the the ones they're uh, replacing. Wide bodies too, by the way, A350s, A330neos. Delta's excited about all of those. The mix of seats, by the way, interesting, uh, you know, system-wide capacity at Delta growing just 3%, not, not a rapid growth airline. But premium seat capacity for the first quarter grew 11%. So Delta is is definitely favoring uh, the, the the front of the cabin there. Um, and they're they're selling more of those seats. You know, it's it's uh, not as many just upgrades to elites in short haul markets. Even their extra legroom comfort plus seats, which used to kind of be the thing that you know they used to to make elites happy if they couldn't put them in the first class cabin <laughs> with an upgrade. Uh, now they're um now they're selling more than half of those as well, getting revenue for them. Uh, you know, even with fuel costs, Delta of course owns an oil refinery, unique unique among airlines. At times, it's been a drag. Uh, it says that was actually uh, worth $40 million in, in uh, profits in the first quarter. And that, of course, is a hedge against rising fuel costs. If, if, if fuel costs were to rise further, uh, that would become even more valuable, Delta, be able to, Delta being able to somewhat control its fuel costs through the refinery. And, and finally, there are those global partnerships. You know, Delta does it as well as anybody. You know, the two European jo- joint ventures, the one with Air France, KLM, and for now anyway, Alitalia, and the separate one with Virgin Atlantic coming together into one. Aeromexico, uh, that's still in its early days. Korean Air uh, is is just about to begin. You know, WestJet is is coming, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, there's 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 a lot to look forward to um, if you're Delta. Are rising fuel costs putting a damper on Q1 earnings season? Yeah, I mean, look, they are getting to not uncomfortably high levels, as as you said, they're still you know reasonable in historical terms, but. You know, but when you see them trending up, the the sort of the natural question is, okay, how how high are they going to go? Um, Delta in its first quarter earnings call, I just went into the Seeking Alpha uh, transcript and counted. They used the word fuel fifteen times, and I've excluded the times that they say like non fuel costs and stuff like that. We I mean, have fifteen times talking about fuel, and you know, here is just 
one one quote, one thing he said. They said, you know, our non-fuel costs are up a little bit, but we still expect full year to be in the target range as for non-fuel costs. The wild card, they said, is obviously fuel. It's probably $5 or $6 a barrel ahead of plan at this point, they said. So a lot of that kind of talk, obviously something that's uh, on the minds of, uh, of all airlines. Delta did point out that at least the reasons why fuel is rising are good reasons. I mean, it, it, you know, Oil costs are going up partly just because of this healthy global economy, which also benefits Delta uh, in terms of revenue. So, yeah, certainly, certainly no crisis, uh, but something that every airline is is thinking a lot about. Okay, it's been ten years since the Delta Northwest merger, which is proving to be a seminal event in the history of the airline industry. That merger worked out really well, and it seems to be an obvious move now. Seth, since you wrote a book on this, can you remind everybody how the merger was viewed 10 years ago? Yeah. Can, can I first remind them about the title of the book in case they want to go, go by go it? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> it's Glory Lost and Found. Glory Lost and Found, how Delta climbed from despair to dominance in the post 9-11 era. I think if you hop on Amazon and just search Delta book, it'll uh, be just about the first thing that pops up. Well, look, I, I just pulled up... Um, our issue, uh, the Airline Weekly issue from uh, 10 years ago this week. And here it is. The cover story headline is Objections at the Altar. Why some shareholders aren't impressed with the Delta Northwest merger pack. Jason, it's it's great reading. You know, we, we wrote that because immediately following the announcement, and this is what we reported in the cover story, Delta's shares were off 20%. Northwest shares off 16%. You know, we, we ran through all the reasons in this cover story why some people were nervous. I'm mean, just going to give you one example. You know, Northwest had, had gone through cleansing bankruptcy, a very painful bankruptcy for its, its, its workers and other stakeholders, but it had very, very low cost, very competitive cost. Uh, it was doing already rather well, I mean, in the context of back then, spiking fuel costs and all the rest of it, but rather well compared to its peers. And by merging with Delta, it was going to face cost creep. I mean, if they did this deal, they were going to have to give the you know the unified work groups big raises and all that. So there were people saying, oh, why, why give all that away? Those kinds of things and lots of other concerns that people had. So, uh, yeah, easy now to look back and say uh, that 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 it was an obvious win. That how could they have considered not doing it? Um, but at the time, it wasn't obvious, and you couldn't blame people because the history of airline mergers generally was. Um, was not a good one. I mean, really, the last one at that point where you could really close the books on it and and you know say how it had gone in the long term was American TWA, which was which was uh, terrible uh, from from uh, you know from the perspective of American the, the surviving airline. U.S. Airways America West had happened more recently, uh, and, and there was there was evidence that that made a lot of financial sense, but it was certainly uh, the, the, a very messy operational integration. It was the you know. Uh, that merged airline was was a mess, at least in that regard, uh, for years. So, yeah, far from obvious at the time. Just, just what a, a what a great merger this was going to be, and and what it was going to mean not only for those two airlines, but uh, for the industry. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, SeatBoost. SeatBoost combines a highly engaging mobile user experience with top-notch experiential marketing to sell upgrades and boost ancillary revenue. 
With SeatBoost, airlines gain robust data insights and maximize revenue on last-minute upgrade sales, whether it's first class, business class, or premium economy upgrades. Visit SeatBoost.com slash AirlineWeekly to discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. It was a pretty exciting news week, I gotta say. IAG, the parent company of British Airways, Iberia, Aer Lingus, and Vueling, surprised a lot of people by buying 5% of Norwegian and expressed interest in a full takeover. Keep in mind, we're not talking about just talk here. They actually bought 5% already. While this move came out of the blue, we wrote in Airline Weekly that it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you you can understand the logic here. I mean, first of all, it it would get an important competitor out of the way. Uh, Look, Norwegian is not a successful airline financially. It's losing more money than, than, uh, well, I guess than any other uh, in terms of total the amount of money it lost last year was more than any other airline in the world. You know, lost a couple hundred million dollars, negative six percent operating margin for uh, for the full year, two thousand seventeen, a year when almost everybody else uh, made money. In some cases, in Europe especially, made good money. Um, so you know, IAG would not be buying um, Norwegian because of how successful it is right now. But yeah, you know, it it, it competes in in long haul markets. There are a lot of markets that. BA is flying, and I'm sure, you know, look, did, did they really want to um, be flying from Gatwick to Fort Lauderdale? Did they really want to be flying 747s from London to Austin? I know they, well, they, they're they happy with that market in general, but, you know, um, there's there's a lot that they're having to do to compete. Um, but look, it's, it's, it's not just that. I mean, this is an airline that holds a lot of, uh, a lot of good slots. Um, and an airline, by the way, Norwegian, I mean, there are parts of it, although it's impossible, you know, you can't see their market by market profit and loss statement, but there are parts of Norwegian that are that are probably fine. You know, domestic Norway uh, probably doing very well for Norwegian. A lot of the short haul markets in Europe. Um, you know, just as when when IAG bought Vueling several years ago, a short haul low cost carrier uh, that, ha- that was already successful. You know, if you could look at those uh, those markets and just see how Norwegian is doing, um, there's every reason to think that it does well in some of those markets. And, and look. That model, Jason, of sort of the, the plug-and-play low-cost carrier, that's worked a lot better than trying to establish your own low-cost carrier as a uh, as as a legacy airline company. I mean, Whaling, I mean, that worked for for uh, IAG. Whereas, uh, you know, Air France, KLM, and Lufthansa Group have struggled to establish their own low-cost units, and on and on. I mean, they're 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 you know the the fleet. Look, IAG's been thinking about buying some uh, some more Dreamliners. Well, buy the Norwegian, and and uh, you know you've got that fleet that you can you know perhaps reallocate more uh, productively uh, than than the kinds of markets uh, that they're in right now. So, uh, you know, IAG has has been right more than it's been wrong. I mean, part of it's just you kind of give them some benefit of the doubt based on how well they've done in recent years. I mentioned the Voiling acquisition, Aer Lingus. Uh, you know, brilliant move. Um, they Took an airline that was interesting to begin with, and uh, it's it's doing better than ever now as a part of that company. So yeah, intriguing for sure. Well, is there any risk to buying a troubled asset like Norwegian? Well, sure. I mean, you know, look on on day one, you become a less profitable company, right? I mean, it's it's uh, you know, there's no part of IAG that's doing as as badly as Norwegian is right now. So by definition, you staple Norwegian to IAG, and IAG on day one is a less profitable company. I mean, look in the same way that when Alaska bought Virgin America, uh, it bought a less profitable company that that dragged down its its um its earnings. The difference here is that where Alaska, um, you know, which is still doing rather well in global terms, has struggled somewhat 
want to digest Virgin America. You know, in that case, it bought an airline that was smaller, but was still still made up an important percentage of the overall merged company. The benefit to being as big as IAG is, is, you know, we ran the numbers, Jason. Um, so IAG in 2017 reported a 13% operating profit margin which is excellent uh you know one, one of the better mar- margins in the world i mentioned norwegian uh a negative 6% margin you know just just about the worst in the world among airlines that that report but here's the thing you staple norwegian to iag and that 13% margin for iag only declines to 11%. It's just such a big company that is, you know, as important as Norwegian seems, just wouldn't be that big of a percentage of IAG. And that's on, and again, that's on day one. That's before you harvest anything from you, before you reallocate the fleet more productively, before you stop doing some of the least productive things that I, that Norwegian does. And so it's, um, is there risk? Of course. Uh, you can't have a transaction like that without risk. But from that perspective, Kind of surprising how little risk there is. And IAG is reportedly interested in Air India too. Uh, do you get the feeling that IAG could permanently set itself apart from the Lufthansa and Air France groups with just a few big correct decisions right now? Well, it's caught in that virtuous cycle, kind of like what I mentioned earlier about Delta, right? Delta is somewhat more profitable than American and United. And then sometimes what that means is that you can take those profits and you know, you just kind of have more more margin for error, right? You can you can invest them and 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 do some things that your competitors maybe can't do. Now, IAG uh, relative to Lufthansa Group and Air France KLM, there's an even bigger spread. Um, you know, in other words, American and, and and United are closer to Delta than are Lufthansa or especially uh, Air France KLM to IAG. Um, so yeah, it, it does have uh, certain liberties, you know, financial liberties that. Uh, uh, that that they don't have now you know once you get into air india i mean that's you know different animal there and and uh and it would involve local partners and and, and all the rest of it it's very different for buying a european airline and you know um being able to do more or less what it wants to do they're you know the in the case of air india absolving even a lot more debt than you would absolve by uh, absorb rather by uh by buying norwegian off the top i don't in front of you i think it would air india it's What's it? Six or eight billion dollars in debt. Within the case of Norwegian, it's uh, it's three billion. But but anyway, yeah, no, this is uh, it's it's a testament to how well they're doing that they're able to think about things like that. Yeah, I would have some confidence that if they did it, it's because uh, because they feel that as crazy of an idea as it seems to you know get involved in, in Air India, especially that uh, that they think the risk is is, is surprisingly low. Another airline that's uh, aggressively expanding is Indonesia's Lion Air, not to be confused with Ryanair. Lion Air likes to order planes. Lion's Lion's fleet currently includes 237, 237 aircraft. Meanwhile, with another 50 planes ordered this month, they now have more than 600 firm orders and more than 1,200 if you count options. <laughs> What is this airline going to look like in ten years? <laughs> well, first of all, they're private and nobody knows anything about their finances. So, so yeah. You know, so if they exist, what will they look like? They'll be a really big airline. I mean, unless they, you know, they 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 uh, cut back on expansion. Um, it's uh, no, it's 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 amazing. Well, I mean, look, if you just do that math, uh, you know, what'd you say two, you know, two hundred thirty-seven planes now, and just just the first six hundred. 
Well, okay, you said you know, Lion Air rhymes with Ryanair. Checking CH Aviation here. Ryanair has 429 airplanes today. You know, Ryanair is a giant airline that carries more passengers, uh, but by a wide margin than any other airline in Europe. Uh, you know, Lionair would be bigger than that if it takes all of those uh, firm orders. Not to mention the other uh, the other 600 options. Um, so yeah, no, this this is an ambitious airline uh, growing rapidly in a part of the world where um, where you know, Southeast Asia where where demand is is growing, you know, where populations are growing. You can understand the rationale. Um, you just have to see their finances to really be able to say if they're if they're growing profitably. Yeah, I mean, do you know what do they look more like? Um, you know, let's say Air Asia, an airline in their neighborhood that generally the group has done rather well, or you know, or Norwegian, where the, the you know where the, the growth has just gotten ahead of them, and it's 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 just difficult to say. But uh, but obviously, an airline uh, very much on the radar of of uh, stakeholders throughout the industry. I mean, imagine what an airline like that means to. Airbus and Boeing means to engine manufacturers and everybody uh, up and down the supply chain to airlines. Back to the U.S. for a minute. Shares of the ultra-low-cost carrier Allegiant have stumbled since last week when the CBS television network revealed that 60 Minutes would air a critical report about the airline's safety practices. That report aired Sunday night. Seth, in a world where investors often buy the rumors, sell the news, or vice versa, when the news is bad, does this mean investors thought the report was worse than they expected? Yeah, kind of interesting. Uh, it, it, uh, so yeah, their shares were down 9% Friday. That's when word came out that this report was going to air. And a lot of times, just the pattern is you think, okay, then it would air. And people say, okay, well, it wasn't so bad. And then, then it sort of bounced back. And, and that's not really what happened. It, it, it's down another, um, as of mid to late afternoon Tuesday, um, as we got set to record, about another 6%, so off 15%. Since new word came out that this report was going to come out, including uh, sort of that last six percent, even after it came out. Um, so you know, was there anything new there? Well, I mean, you know, this has this airline's been the subject of of, of questions about its its maintenance procedures. Uh, the Tampa Bay Times uh, two years ago did a did an investigative series about these uh, issues, you know, various safety issues that it had come up, uh, also criticizing the FAA in the U.S. for, for its uh, enforcement practices. And the CBS report largely echoed some of that. There were new accusations. There was an incident uh, late last year where the allegation is that the airline didn't evacuate passengers quickly, even though there were fumes that later were said to be noxious in the cabin after it landed. The allegation is that it seemed to not want to evacuate them because the evacuation would look bad uh, and, and that they were kept on board longer than, than necessary. That was new uh, since that last series of reports. Um, but anyway, yeah, for, for whatever reason, I guess their investors are concerned that maybe there's more impact here uh, in terms of reputation, your impact on, on, on bookings than would have been expected. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see here uh, when they report earnings, if, if, if they do say anything about that. Uh, they, by the way, are set to go April 25th. So that's what, next Wednesday. We'll have to uh, hear if, if they have anything new to say about that. Allegiant, by the way, came out rather forcefully saying, look, there was nothing new there, denying allegations that uh, that employees are, are encouraged to you know, to, to, to not report incidents uh, that would make the airline look bad and and so forth. Yeah, no, clearly not a good week for them in terms of publicity. We'll have to see later what it adds up to in terms of uh, in terms of any financial impact. 
my mother-in-law flies Allegiant and she watches 60 Minutes. And therefore, <laughs> I was told to ask you this. Seth, would you fly Allegiant? Look, it's, it's not just theoretical. I mean, I, ha- I have flown Allegiant uh, just once. I did one round trip on them uh, a, a few years back when I was still living in Fort Lauderdale, flew to Asheville. There, you know, it was, it was a cheap nonstop flight, um, you know, straight to the airport where we wanted to go, the only nonstop option, not to mention how inexpensive it was. And that's why people tend to fly Allegiant. And a number of people have asked me that question, would I fly Allegiant? And, and, and this is what I've to, to one degree or another, told told all of them, depending on exactly what their question is. I say, look, um, is Allegiant less safe than any than other U.S. airlines? Well, look, sixty minutes did, did a pretty thorough review of of uh, incident reports, um, and you know they said that there were you know that that Allegiant experienced three and a half times as many what they called serious incidents as uh, a basket of other US airlines they looked at American United Delta uh JetBlue and Spirit you know likewise an ultra low cost carrier so um you know they said Allegiant's rate of these occurrences was was just much higher you know on the other hand uh flying Allegiant even if it is you know i don't know perhaps uh you know less safe than flying other US airlines is still safer than Almost everything else we do in our daily lives, um, you know, including driving for people who drive cars. Um, you know, it's safer than skiing. It's safer, it's safer than all kinds of things that that people do, right? So, so what I would caution people against, what I have cautioned people against, is, you know, if you're choosing between Allegiant and another airline, there were some rather disconcerting things in that report and in the Tampa Bay Times series. But anybody who is going to, you know, drive from Rockford, Illinois to Las Vegas in order to avoid flying Allegiant is 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 doing a poor assessment of, of risk because you know thirty five thousand Americans die every year in car uh, accidents and you know for all these concerns you know obviously well documented that things have gone wrong at Allegiant thankfully so far um, everybody has has been fine and. It doesn't absolve them at all, but the good news is that the Airbus 319s and 320s that are rapidly replacing the MD-80 series, series aircraft um, you know, clearly have a much better record. I mean, all of these questions have, have focused on the uh, uh, on, on the MD-80s. So, you know, you, you would hope that it would be more than just this, but the airline is kind of automatically getting safer month by month as as the composition of the flight uh, becomes more more of an Airbus fleet. All right, let's switch gears to a well another ultra low cost carrier in the U.S. Frontier is launching sixty nine routes this month alone. Is any other airline, any other U.S. airline, growing this aggressively? And how are they doing financially? Frontier, I mean. Yeah, no, no, nobody else is 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 growing that aggressively. I just just went into Dio and and uh, and ran it. So even if you look at the ultra low cost carriers, which which are the fastest growing, uh, Frontier. Um, after all these new routes, I, I pulled up a sample week in May. Just make sure we kind of got all of all of those routes in. Frontier uh, by seats anyway, up twenty two percent compared to the same period a year earlier. Uh, Allegiant, about 10%. Spirit, about 15%. Now, if you do it by available seat miles, by the way, by the way, Jason, um, Spirit is, uh, it is actually higher 
than Frontier. Uh, so they have some some longer routes that are uh, that are launching, which is uh, what pushes it up by ASMs. But yeah, Frontier growing very rapidly. Uh, now look, every time they announce a whole bunch of additions, they also cut routes. I mean, that's typical of an airline like that. There is churn. Um, so it's not 69 net new routes. Uh, I haven't looked to see, but I'm sure it's a couple dozen cuts, uh, you know, at least in there too. But a, a very, very fast growing airline. You asked about their finances. And uh, well, we, we don't know how they did even in the fourth quarter yet. So, so remember, here we are talking about uh, first quarter reports. Uh, you know, Delta already went, other airlines going this week and next. Uh, Frontier, because it's not a publicly traded airline, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't report to the Security Exchange Commission. There's no, you know, it's obviously shares don't trade. It doesn't hold earnings calls or any of that. Um, but airlines are required to report their finances with the U.S. government, and that information eventually emerges, but it takes longer. May seventh, actually, is when we'll first know about the fourth quarter. So that's when we'll first be able to say how they did for all of uh, 2017. But Jason, having said that, taking a look here at uh, the the most recent 12 months that we do have. Uh, on Frontier. So that would be oh, uh, October of 2016 through September of 2017. So, you know, covering sort of at least uh, three quarters away to that through 2017, they had a 17% op- operating margin for that period, uh, which ranked them number six in the world, uh, kind of right between Wizz Air and Southwest. Fast growth, a lot of markets that don't work that they pull quickly. But um, when you add it all up, although we can't scrutinize their finances quite like those of other airlines, they're clearly doing rather well. Anybody who's in the top 10 in the world uh, is, is uh, a successful airline. All right. On that note, we'll leave it right there. Thanks for spending some time with us in the Airline Weekly Lounge. This episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge was sponsored by SeatBoost. Visit SeatBoost.com slash Airline Weekly and discover how they can help boost ancillary revenue. That's S-E-A-T-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash Airline Weekly.